The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. You're listening to The Views Room, a podcast brought to you from the staff of Breaking Views. I'm your host, Jennifer Saba, and joining me in the studio in New York is co-host Anthony Curry. Hello, Anthony. Hello. And our colleague, Anna Shemansky. Hi, Anna. Hello. All right, so later in the program, I'm tossing the mic over to Hong Kong, where Pete Sweeney and Robin Mack will discuss the NBA in China. But first, we're going to turn to General Motors. It's been more than three weeks since the United Auto Workers have called a strike it involves 48,000 workers, and it's cost GM more than $1 billion, according to some estimates. The standoff only seems to be escalating. Luckily, Anthony, you know the auto industry. So will, some you, bit, yeah. will you kind of take us through this, and how did this all come about? Sure. What do you want to know first? Well, what I want to know first is, really, how did this all start? Because it seems like strikes to me is something that was maybe 20 years ago like yeah, i just didn't I think, hear yeah, much I mean, the, about them the last lately. one i think was 2007 okay so what so, happens and it wasn't a very long one so what happens is every four years there's basically the, the the union and the car makers have an agreement for the hourly union workers that lasts for about four years so every four years they come together and decide that we're going to start chatting about what we do for the next four year uh, structural plan for paying um, uh, an incentivized. So employees. is that when their contracts come up? Yes, basically. exactly. Okay. Um, and each time that comes round, the union will pick one of the big three automakers. So we're talking just really about the Detroit automakers here. So okay, Fiat Chrysler, Ford, and General Motors. And they'll pick one of them to be the lead negotiator with. So this, this time round, it's General Motors. So all this is pretty normal. Uh, so far, so normal, at least, should I say. But then we get into a lot of the sticking points about what the, the union wants versus what General Motors wants. Okay, and that's can, where the strike talk starts. Can I ask you something tactically then? I mean, the United Auto Workers is basically the union that represents all the auto workers for all the big Well, the majority of them. Right? There are other unions as well, but they're the biggest. Right. So far. it's not just GM is what I'm saying. No, exactly. Yeah. So how when, when they go on strike, is it only GM workers? Or does this also, if you're a United Auto Worker, do you have to go on strike? No, not at all. I mean, company? there's always a chance you might decide to go out uh, on strike in solidarity. But the way it basically happens is at the moment you've got only GM workers are out on strike. Although... There are ripple effects. So, for you know, think about it. If you if you are uh, working for a supplier, um, or if you're working for a and you're not in the, un, in the United Auto Workers Union, but you are working for GM, say in Canada or Mexico, making parts for cars or waiting for parts to come to you from the plants that have shut down in the U.S., you're going to find yourself being laid off, fur- furloughed, as they call it, because there's no work for you to be done, and that is gradually increasing throughout the industry. So, suppliers and other other sort of non-U.S. plants. And what seems to be behind this this strike, isn't it partly you have the UAW is pushing to eliminate temporary workers or at least reduce them, whereas GM kind of needs to be a bit more flexible and yeah. also has been needing to close some plants, um, as many of the other auto, um, yeah. auto shops have as well. Uh, is there anything else going on here? Yeah, there's a fa- there's a fair number of things. So I think you know, if you step back and think, where are we now? We are now ten years from the bankruptcy. Um, the the financial crisis. Well, the financial bro- crisis hastened. I mean, GM was a mess for years. Um, Got saved by the government in a government a taxpayer funded bailout. And really, this is the first time that GM has been in a really healthy position 
and also the lead company in the negotiations. So to a great extent, the UAW is thinking, let's see, not so much how much we can claw back, but let's see if we can get a better deal this time than we got um, last time around when we were at GM at the beginning. So they're looking for, yes, we want better security uh, for for our workers uh, on their jobs. You're more going to temporary workers, which was in part uh, what happened uh, during the uh, the bankruptcy negotiations and beforehand to try and give GM more flexibility. They want uh, better incentives. They want better bonuses. Um, they want better health care, or at least more, more better structured health care. And none of this is particularly wrong, right? In fact, right before the strike started, so we're going about three weeks now, the night before it's, the, the strike was called, GM finally caved on a lot of these issues mm-hmm. um, and said that we'll do a lot of this. We'll even think about keeping the, some of the plants open that we said last year that we closed. Um, so ideally, these two parties should have come together long before now in fact that was the, the, the first idea i came up with and this is this is this really is just both sides sort of flexing their muscles saying we're still kind of in the game here especially the uaw well isn't it partly also because the uaw is dealing with a corruption scandal well that is the other big elephant in the room actually yes so um this has been going on for a while now, but basically in the past month or so, the union president, um, Gary Jones, uh, his home was searched. The Detroit News has said that he's one of the main figures being investigated. It's all about a kickback scandal, which involves mostly Fiat Chrysler, I think. was, was the, sort of the, the union officials were uh, getting together with some of the people at Fiat Chrysler they were dealing with, and they were getting, you know, you name all the you know, tickets, uh, golf outings, money, everything else being thrown their way uh, to, you know, keep them sweet. And this looks really bad for the union. So guess what you're going to do if you're the chief negotiator with GM and GM's being a little bit tricky with you? First of all, you're going to say, I've got to show to my workers anyway that the union is still important. Secondly, I've got to show to them that we are not being diverted by this scandal. And in fact, if we can come up with a really good deal and show that we've got power, maybe just maybe the scandal won't be that important. And also, I've got to think that the union negotiator, um, uh, Mr. Didders, is thinking, the president's not looking too good right now for the UAW. Maybe that's the next step for me. I mean, I'm guessing there, but you've got to think there's a bit of power play going on here that he wants to have the top job at some point. But then it almost seems like the union's kind of thinking about itself a little bit more than it's thinking about its members because its members are suffering right now while they're not in work. And it does seem like the deal that um, GM originally came out with wasn't awful. It wasn't awful. You could have, you could have improved on it. There's still things they can do. And what, what, what is weird to me now is you've got, I say weird, I mean, I should have expected this a few weeks ago, actually, but the latest round from the UAW is a letter they sent out this week uh, basically saying we want um, more car manufacturing to come back to the US for Mexico especially. Mm-hmm. Um, which this has been going on for a long time. President Donald Trump has been talking about this ever since starting his election campaign in 2015. Um, and he's been really pushing for it. You saw it at you know, various other companies he went after even before he took over the, in the White House. So it's surprising in some respects that the UAW only now is coming up with this bring more uh, of your manufacturing back to the US. But that, I think, is because <laughs> I'm guessing they're getting towards a better agreement. And this is a way of prolonging it a bit to make sure that let's get more out of this as we can. I mean, good negotiating tactics, but you know, it's three and a half weeks in, guys, and your members are suffering. So where, again, going back to the breakdown, um, was it because of the scandal or was there some other reason that this has been so I th- prolonged? I, I don't think you can really pin it on any one thing. Hmm. Um, I think, you know, GM doesn't seem to have acted particularly well in the in the run-up to uh, or in the initial negotiations before the contract ended. That was three weeks ago. The contract ended. And you could then, as the UAW, you can decide – do we extend the contract while we negotiate or do we call a halt and call a strike? And in the run-up to that, GM was being 
pretty ridiculous. And what's their? They have they're profitable now, right? Oh yeah, yeah, they're oh. profitable. They're actually they're, they are the most profitable of the three U.S. automakers, which okay. isn't saying a huge amount because none of them makes a great deal of money. Right, and I also think you are looking at a point where we're going to be seeing auto sales declining just in terms yep. of the business cycle and also, frankly, in terms of global trends. And GM in particular was poorly positioned because of the way a, like, a lot of their plants only made sedans. Yes, although don't forget, they've also basically pulled out of sedans. So. Right, but that's the issue. So they had to eliminate entire plants, yeah. whereas a place like Ford, they only had part of a plant making sedans. So yeah, they I mean, still keep yeah, I mean, plant Ford, open. Ford right. was always a lot further along in what they, well, they called it, it's the one Ford plan under Alan Mulally, who came in just before the, the, the financial crisis. And the whole idea were there was to make sure you could build virtually anything on any platform. GM went a bit more slowly and was, you know, they were a really big truck maker, along with, with Ford and Chrysler, and the profits from those keep the engine keep the wheels turning as it were the financial wheels turning so for them it was a lot easier to say or a lot more comfortable for them to say let's just push this along we'll do it more slowly but they're basically getting out of it so yes you've got the plants that are closing but they're also further advanced than say ford and especially fiat chrysler on automation and electrification whatever that means because i don't think we're heading towards um, mass electrification and definitely not automation and automation of driving anytime soon I think the UAW is looking at them thinking, on the one hand, you're the most profitable. On the other, you're further advanced in automation, which will also impact our, our um, employees. You know, if you think if you don't need um, internal combustion engines, you need battery engines, guess battery powered engines, guess what? You're going to need fewer people on the floor uh, constructing these things. So they are really trying to look at GM and say, right, we need to use you as a test case, really to try and get all these things done, as well as, as the union, prove that we are um, you know, not just a scandal-ridden entity. So does that mean that Ford and the others are going to face the same kind of reckoning with the U- not, UAW? No, not necessarily. Uh, what what is supposed to happen is that the lead the lead uh, car maker once it comes up with the negotiations and gets the negotiations and says here's the deal that deal is then largely transferred to the others with some minor tweaks. Okay. The chances are at the moment it doesn't look like it's going to happen that the, the UAW is negotiating with the other two car makers with Ford and Fiat Chrysler, but. Um, it's extended the contracts that have already lapsed at those, so they continue negotiations. Uh, and they seem much more willing to let that uh, run its pace. So what has been the effect on GM of this extract? I think based on where GM's trading, we're looking at a uh, just over a billion dollars of losses, which is almost $1.1 billion. The interesting thing was that the shareholders, until the past few days, really didn't seem to care too much. So it was like they were just assuming this would last for you know, six, seven days, which is what we were thinking, you know, that the union is you know, puffing out its chest, proving it's still around. But actually, just in the past few days, I think they realized that they've gone way beyond uh, just a few days and they, they're way beyond the idea that they could easily claw that back with overtime and with they've got a fair bit of inventory um, stuck at dealers they can still sell. But then that shareholders are now realizing that GM's actually getting a little bit stuck. So actually, the, the stock is now down 12-ish percent, I think, from just before uh, the strike was called, and market cap loss is about seven billion. So that's that's gone up a fair whack just in the past uh, just in the past few days. So I think shareholders are finally getting uh, the bad joke that this is a lot worse for GM uh, than it seemed to be even just uh, just a week ago. Okay, thanks, Anthony. A pleasure. I'm Robin Mack, and I'm here with Pete Sweeney in Hong Kong to talk about the NBA. So the league's commissioner, Adam Silver, has defended a Houston Rockets executive for supporting pro-democracy protesters in Hong Kong. Now, Beijing has pushed back and really retaliated by 
uh, suspending broadcasts of the preseason games. And many companies, including gaming titan Tencent, has now distanced itself from the NBA. Pete, what's going on here? Can you just fill us in? Well, so on the one hand, this marks a long part of a long series of uh, issues where Beijing has taken exception to multinationals' um, uh, treatment of its its territorial claims. Um, so we've had uh, Versace, Delta Airlines, tons of companies that that have like accidentally or you know put Taiwan in the country field uh, or and Hong Kong in the country field on the reservation forms or left left Taiwan off of T-shirts, all sorts of things. U- UBS analysts got in trouble for for talking about Chinese pigs and insulting. Some people took umbrage at that. The point being is that that like on the one hand this looks like par for the course. The NBA has expressed regret. So did the the Houston Rockets uh, chief manager Maury. Um, that said, Adam Silver came out and expressed after all this um, and expressed support for for Maury's freedom of speech, which is a change in tone. The so, NBA so has what, a lot yeah. to lose here, right? So what, what do you think is, is makes this different? I mean, like you say, the NBA does have a lot to lose. Yeah, I mean, they estimate it. So last year, one of their um, – the, the NBA is not listed, and you, you don't have total visibility into their into their financial performance. But last year they gave an interview – an executive gave an interview to um, to Forbes in which he said he valued the China business at $4 billion U.S. dollars. And that's almost certainly grown since. They just inked a new contract with Tencent, the internet giant, which is making – is really, you know – gotten very close with the NBA and made it kind of a linchpin of its online sports development strategy. Um, they just re-signed a five-year contract. Domestic media is reporting the contract's worth $1.5 billion. There are hundreds of thousands of fans in China. You know, American basketball is one of the most popular sports to play and to watch. And there's really no domestic alternative. You know, the Chinese sports teams, thanks to like state meddling, have kind of failed to develop. I guess there's Canadian basketball, but it's it's really kind of the only basketball game in town, as it were. Ha ha ha. So the fact that Silver is pushing back is quite interesting because you would expect him to join all these other executives following this president where you say, I'm very, very sorry. You know, very, 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 very sorry. And please let us continue to do business. But he did not. So, I mean, do you think the reason that he's able to push back a bit is... You know, mostly because actually the Chinese companies like Tencent, like Anta, like, you know, a lot of the broadcasters, they actually have quite a lot to lose as well. Yeah, well, there's just this given whole, how popular the sport is. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the NBA stars, the logos, they feed this massive ecosystem. Uh, I apologize for using the word, but like this huge value chain, supply chain of companies that are making bags and basketballs and shoes and t-shirts that are that are rebroadcasting games and 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 sponsorships i mean just the rights business is enormous um and the nba certainly profits from that but there's a lot of trickle down so those people lose but of course you know from beijing's perspective you know the nba stands to lose this huge market i mean tencent is the nba's biggest partner outside of the united states and you hear all the chinese numbers of 1.4 billion people, you know, and they all grew up playing basketball because basketball courts are very easy to fit in Chinese cities, you know, as opposed to soccer fields, which are which are a bit harder. But I mean, the thing is that this has become political football in the States. And Beijing might well have misstepped here. You know, your average American doesn't really get up in arms about Versace or airlines or banks, you know, or UPS apologizing to the Chinese. But this in which Beijing has basically suggested that or, or tried to, to force the NBA, which has 
in the past taken stances that are kind of pro-freedom of speech for its players and stuff like that to, to back off, has really caught the attention of a huge swath of Americans, both Republican and Democrat, in the middle of an election cycle. Right. You know, so and brought we, to attention yeah. that China is trying to censor free speech outside of China now. So, I mean, do you think that's because this is, you know, it involves Hong Kong, which is a particularly sensitive subject for both sides? Or do you think this is more because, you know, the NBA is quite a iconic American institution and it just looks really bad if they are pandering to Chinese patriotism. Well, I mean, Beijing is trying to get everybody on side with its Hong Kong message, which is these are violent rioters, not democracy protesters. I mean, Joe Tsai of Alibaba, you know, he owns the Nets. Um, you know, he came out with this long post defending the move and saying, you know, basically that describing the Hong Kong movement as a separatist movement, which it is not, at least not, not their, their demands are not for independence. But he kind of put it that way. Right. And, and he has quite a lot to lose, too, because he, you know, he owns the <laughs> and Nets. And he's stuck and in now, a very uncomfortable position. Yeah, you know, this so guy has a Canadian passport. Um, right. So it, it's but I mean, why are, you know, even, you know, U.S. politicians, presidential hopefuls, I mean, they seem to be just all coming out now. It's a and, golden issue yeah. for like people like Elizabeth Warren. Right. I mean, she gets to to beat up on China, like which is like a bipartisan, like the easiest thing to kick right now. Um, and she gets to go after corporate greed. You know, why are you guys apologizing for somebody expressing their freedom of speech just so you can get Chinese money? Beto O'Rourke is in there. Ted Cruz is in there. They're all kind of so. So the NBA has this choice, you know, of like whether to be just like become the, the whipping boy of like the Democratic Party <laughs> or try and draw a little bit of a line here. And yeah, we'll see what they get away with. But do you think, I mean, other companies now that, you know, when they see the NBA, you know, are put in this really hard position, you know, what are they going to do the next time that they do find themselves in hot water in China? Are they going to be so readily, you know, willing to just issue a groveling apology or do you think they will think twice and say listen like if the nba can push back maybe we can too well if, yeah if somebody like the nba with that much market share is willing to take a stand you know then they might think about it also you know everybody hates to stand out from the crowd so i mean there's sort of this first mover if the nba ends up holding the line the next company to be like yeah whatever you know won't be the first past consumer boycotts have sort of petered out. You know, you've seen this with sort of the Japanese brands as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's South easy to Korean rally nationalists in China yeah. for like a couple of weeks, you know, I'm not going to watch, you know, and then yeah. the end of the day, they're going to want to sit down at the television, and watch good basketball, yeah. you know, and there's not an alternative, you know, it's just like with tourism, you know, Chinese people like visiting Japan. They'll get angry about it before a while they'll go back. So you don't think this will sort of have a lasting damage well, I don't NBA, know. I mean, then. it is entirely possible that this regime will kick the NBA out of the country if they don't if they don't do something. Um, and I'm sure the NBA executives are under extremely high pressure, you know, because Beijing doesn't want to be seen as doing that, of like ruining a good time for hundreds of thousands of, of basketball fans. So neither of them is in a very comfortable position right now. But the fact that the American politicians are, are in behind, you know, NBA pushing in the other direction just makes it an extremely difficult situation for everybody involved. Okay, thanks, Pete. We'll uh, keep an eye out for that. Thanks, Robin. That's our show for this week. I'd like to thank our guests, Anna Shemansky, Pete Sweeney and Robin Mack, and hats off to our producers, Andrew D'Antonio and Freddie Joyner. A final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com. Subscribe to The Views Room on iTunes, as well as our sister podcast, The Exchange. And don't forget to tune in next week for another edition.